Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Yo-ho, yo-ho, an Irish life for me. Though I'm not a man, I ruled o'er my clan. Drink up, me hearties, yo-ho. Governor was mean, so I told the queen, and off to prison he go. Oh, yo-ho, yo-ho, I was the queen of the sea. The end. Let's talk about Grace O'Malley. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1593, the windmill with a crankshaft was patented in Holland. The plague hit London hard, closing the theaters, and since he couldn't stage any plays, relative newbie to the London stage, William Shakespeare published his first long poem, Venus and Adonis. King Henry IV of France converted to Catholicism. Queen Mary's ex, Philip II, was ruling Spain. Mary, Queen of Scots, had been dead for about six years, but her only child, James, was King of Scotland. Catherine de' Medici and Artemisia Gentileschi were both born, and in 1593, Queen Elizabeth I, who had been ruling for over 30 years, granted an audience with Irish pirate queen Grace O'Malley. Grania O'Malley, that's G-R-A-I-N-N-E space U-I space M-H-A-I-L-L-E, wasn't that how you would think we spell it? <laughs> was born in 1530 on Clare Island in the country of Ireland. She was the only child of Owen O'Malley and his wife, Margaret, who had been an O'Malley cousin before marriage. First cousin, second cousin, level of cousin, undetermined. <laughs> uh, Papa did seem to have at least one other child himself, a son by another woman, so technically Grania did have a half-brother, but he does really appear in this story at all and functionally anyway she was raised as an only child so salute to donald of the pipes that is the last time i'm going to say his name the <laughs> that's funny papa was the head of their clan the o'malley he was known as i'm the graham <laughs> am i <laughs> no you are here <laughs> my son is the graham who are we kidding uh papa was the chief of one of the very few seafaring clans of ireland which i thought was weird because ireland is of course an island but most of the 60 or so distinct countries for lack of a better description kept their booties on dry land also surprising to me since the 500s or so, the O'Malley's had run fleets of ships, fishing, legitimate, charging other people for the right to fish in their waters. I think that's a green light. That's fine. Charging passing sea traffic for safe passage. <laughs> that's a yellow light. That implies a little extortion. <laughs> to, to their credit, the waters around their area were actually quite treacherous. There was a lot of little islands and weird currents and shallows that could take any foreign ship at any time. So, you know, Giving them passage, like routes and information, was actually, I'm going to say, closer to a green light because it's important. That's valuable information. I am not 100% sure they gave them any information. I think it was more like, hey, give us some goods and we won't come over there. <laughs> That's the safe passage I thought it was. <laughs> and then they 
outright just boarded and looted ships because they felt like it. Red light, piracy. <laughs> now, if this were a movie, I would illustrate the passing of a foreign ship coming down the coast from Scotland and then swinging way out to the west <laughs> as they reach the bottom half of Ireland, just out of self-preservation. <laughs> um, probably they are sweating, though I don't know how I would draw that, and um, likely praying to be invisible. And then a big swing around the bottom. These O'Malley's were no joke. The clan was so notorious that some towns even in Ireland, did not allow them to come in and trade. It's like, don't let the vampires in. This rule was literally in existence. And I quote, Neither O nor Mac shall strut nor swagger through the streets of Galway, for example. They were blocked. <laughs> no skin off our nose, said the O'Malley's. We'll just trade with France and Spain and Portugal and England. I mean, they're paying top dollar for all this stuff anyway, and dang near Everything we bring over there gives us a lot of money. Wool, furs, even seafood. And we're getting more practice sailing, if that's what you guys really want. Absolutely. Fearless in the ocean. You know, like the way you can walk around your own house in the dark, but anyone else is just helpless without the flashlight on their phone. <laughs> the O'Malley's could go where others could not. They treated the ocean like a highway where everyone else faced this insurmountable barrier. We think of them as like a seafaring, completely getting their whole living off the water, but they weren't. There were little um, offshoots of the O'Malley clan that were into farming and cattle. So it's not just fish, although the waters in their area were extremely well stocked with all kinds of fish. They were honing their skills on the ocean, whatever skills those might be, and their shipbuilding skills on the land. So not all of them were farmers. Their part of the island was also full of good timber. Doesn't it seem like fate has really favored them with a lot of raw materials? Strength after strength. Their family motto was, in fact, Terra Marique Potines, invincible on land and sea. I love how every family and every person has like a motto in this story. I didn't really know a lot about Irish history going into this one, so... It was all fascinating to me, I guess. Sometimes when we do subjects that we don't know a lot about, there's so much background reading to do that you don't even get to the lady until quite a lot in because you have to even understand what the structure's like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if we had in the past studied England like Elizabeth I, we think of Ireland in that context. But, you know, at this point, there is no central government. For Ireland. It's all these little municipalities that were the clans, all self-governed and always trying to change their territorial lines and battling within themselves. Other clans hired them to either be mercenaries or transport mercenaries to battle. It was a monopoly and steady work because nobody got along. It's a long history. It's like a rough and tough version of all those little Germanic principalities. Mm -hmm. Their castles weren't like German castles, we think of fairy book castles. They were more towers of protection rather than domestic bliss. <laughs> Papa was an extremely wealthy man. Imagine these towers, these, you know, simple towers full of exotic products not found elsewhere in Ireland. We don't really know a whole lot about Margaret Granier's mother. We do know that she came into the marriage with her own property, inherited lands and wealth uh, that she had gotten from her family's side. And other than that, we don't really know a heck of a lot about her. And a lot of Granier's life, especially the early part, is going to be in the realm of speculation. It is said that blah, 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 or likely this or that. Now, as long as everyone's comfortable with the fact that we are only going to be as accurate as 
everyone's sources on this one. <laughs> yeah. So. Actually, if we only pulled out the commonalities between all the sources, we would probably be done by now. <laughs> the O'Malley lands contained a Carmelite order of Catholic friars paid for and maintained by the clan who may have been in charge of Grania's education and the book learning part of it. Anyway, we talked about this during both the wives of Henry VIII and the Queen Elizabeth shows. We are in England in a brief, glorious period where education of noble women was both fashionable and accomplished. Um, but I'm not exactly sure how well that reached across the channel to Ireland. Grania later had occasion to break out her Latin, as we shall see, and this is really all the evidence we have of a formal education. Uh, likely stopped with Latin and reading, frankly, because you really still just paid people to write for you. Mm-hmm. I'd be surprised if her lady mother didn't get in there with embroidery and knitting lessons, but that's just speculation. Mm -hmm. That Yeah, that's true. Although Grenier was clearly very intelligent because she did pick up other languages in her lifetime on her travels. But that's yeah. just like supermodels always speak a lot of languages, too. Right. <laughs> because they have to to get along in their work. That's almost like the better way to learn it. Although I think you learn a lot of curse words. <laughs> learning languages in a kitchen or on the ocean. I think you're, you might not learn polite versions of your chosen languages. <laughs> That's, true. That's true. Well, what little Grania wanted more than anything was to go to sea, like Papa, like the men. The sea is no place for a woman, said Papa, even a wee one like yourself. You know, when your six or seven-year-old child has just a thing in their heart, dinosaurs or whatever it is, <laughs> and they just make it their life. Uh, you know, and hers was ships and sailors and the ocean drawing of boats and telling stories about boats and badgering the old men to teach you how to tie knots. We are fully into this in a way that only the tiny children of the world can understand. <laughs> well, she did live on a fairly small island, <laughs> so she's surrounded by water and it is the family business. So I can see where the call of the sea would be very loud in her life, you know? Well, her father joked with her one day, Grania, your hair would just blow around in the sea wind and get tangled up in the lines. And then child logic kicked in. Oh, is that the obstacle? And she went and cut off all her hair. Do you think with a knife? I mean, scissors existed. And if anyone in Ireland had them, it would be the O'Malley's. But I imagine her with a kitchen knife. <laughs> Yeah, in the back, cutting off all her hair. But whatever implement she used, she just hacked it off and presented herself back at the hearth. Done. Problem solved. And now I go to sea. Right, Papa? Uh, <laughs> oh, crap. That <laughs> is not what I meant. <laughs> her parents teased her about what I can only imagine was a fine mess of a hairdo. I've seen plenty of kindergartners cut their bangs off, but this was like the worst version of this. Uh, they started to call her Grania Whale, which is spelled... M-H-A-O-L. Shortened to Granuel, of course, which means... Grania the Bald. <laughs> In the realm of nicknames, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, her father had the coolest one. He was called Black Oak. That is true. I think, in light of all the ways her name is spelled and said, Granny O'Malley being my favorite. <laughs> there's Gron, there's Granny, there's Grace, which is actually just an anglicization of her name that really we don't even see used. 
But anyway, there's all manner of cockamamie spellings and things. I would like to stick with Grania because from what I can see, I'm not sure anyone living the same time she did ever called her Granuale, except that parent story. It's her folklore name, like Red Riding Hood equals Granuale. It, it kind of came about later. It's her legend name and not her person name. Does that make sense? That makes complete sense. I'm sitting here in awe with your ability to explain that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I welcome any citation to the contrary, but she's referred to on paper as Grania, so I'm going to stick with that. Um, her parents really did value her determination so much, and it could just be her dad because, again, we don't know too much about Margaret and her ways and means, and honestly, it might not have mattered what Mama thought in the first place. Uh, she was allowed to start going out to sea with Papa. There are some stories out there that say that the first time she went to sea, she stowed away and waited until she was far enough out before she revealed herself. And haha, her father was charmed and began her sea education at that point, which is a great story. The Irish are awesome with stories. I'm going to give them that too. And there's another talk about how he was going on a trip to Spain and she followed him around and badgered him. Oh, we have all been there until he gave in, which having been a parent of a small child with that love of something in their hearts, I can actually see the truth of that one. <laughs> and I can see her mother saying, okay, fine. Because while dad was gone, if Grania was just carrying on about the ocean, I, she probably was looking for some silence on the whole subject. You know, maybe she'd go to sea and get sick and that would be the end of that. Oh, get it out of your system. Mm, mm -hmm. That's a strategy that often backfires. Yes, it does. If there were any objections among her father's crew, they were not recorded. It helps when your dad's the big boss, I'd think. So instead of being fostered out to another family, like other children of her age were, Grania was on her father's ship, learning the ropes, literally. <laughs> Is that where that came from? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to ask Helen. <laughs> and geography and navigation and just the ways of the ocean. What to expect when it does this? Um, you know, where are the rocks? That kind of thing. Speaking of fostering that I just kind of mentioned a second ago, uh, the clans used to raise each other's children. And I would assume you wouldn't send your child to your worst enemy. There's kind of a network of guys that you kind of have a loose coalition with. And that's what the fostering was about. Strengthening the bond between friendly clans and, incidentally, probably improving the gene pool. Because not everyone should marry their cousin. <laughs> I thought of the clan as kind of like a multi-level marketing plan because you have the chieftain at the top who is an elected official. This is Ireland. This isn't England. There's no primogenitor. So um, you have him at the top and then you have all these little people that report to him and they have people that report to them and they all do different things. So fostering the kids out was kind of like those homeschool groups where you send your kids to different houses to people who know different things. You send them to this house to learn piano. You send them to this house to learn woodworking or whatever. So that's what this fostering system was about. And I thought it was brilliant. But not for Grania, who no. I can only imagine was also learning to drink and spit and curse and gamble. You would think she was in training to be a chef. It was such <laughs> a strange upbringing for a girl. <laughs> but there it is. That is what she is learning. Uh, Seacraft, 
etc. In the realm of folklore is her performance during a fracas with some English pirates who had boarded the Irish vessel she was riding on, and a big movie-like fight had broken out. Now, Papa had always told her that if this happens, go below. They'd run drills and everything. But on this occasion, the way below was blocked. So she used her wits and just climbed the rigging. So if you can't go down, go up, where, of course, she had a great view of the proceedings. The story goes forward down on deck. Papa had dispatched an opponent, but was staggering around because he had a big injury. And she saw an English pirate creeping up behind her father with a knife. And Grania just launched herself out of the sky and knocked the man out. Granuel the legend was born. <laughs> that should be like a wrestler on Glow. <laughs> do you watch that? Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. It's on Netflix. What do you think? <laughs> I think that they should have had a pirate. I mean, maybe they did. There's not one on the TV show, but there, maybe there was in real life because it's based on reality. Man, there are things out there I can't even imagine. <laughs> but that's what it's like, you know, like wrestlers, they get up on the ropes, you know, at the top and then they leap down. I, all right, I had been watching Glow, so that was in my mind. Mm. I imagine that Grania had to claw for every shred of respect she got, not only because she was a girl, although that's a big obstacle, but she's also the daughter of the boss. So you really have to bring it, I think, and prove that you haven't gotten there because your dad brought you there. And by the time she was a teenager, she was rougher and tougher than any of them to compensate. But as so often happens, biology catches up to you. Biology and tradition, that is. And at 16, she was hauled off the galley ship and into the kitchen. <laughs> okay, that took me a long time because that's a nautical joke. <laughs> oh, <laughs> on a boat, the galley is the kitchen and a galley is the kind of ship that they were on. Do you see how clever this is? <laughs> <laughs> and she was married off to the son of a chieftain of the O'Flaherty clan, Donald O'Flaherty, whose nickname was Donald of the Battles, which should tell you just about everything you need to know about this guy. Well, his family motto was Fortuna Favit Fortibus. Fortune favors the bold. Well, Grania was sent to her new home with a dowry of livestock and goods, and everyone seems to think ships, at least three ships. Um, divorce was common, and death of a husband by war or disease was quite likely. So traditionally, this dowry, Grania's was giant, of course, as the daughter of a chieftain, but any dowry that a bride went into a marriage with technically was hers to take back out if the marriage ended for any reason, death or divorce. So it was hers. The contracts were very specific about this, and there were penalties for not releasing her dowry. It was sort of a historical prenup. Mm -hmm. The O'Flaherty's were also a seafaring people, but young matrons were not invited to participate in seafaring lifestyles. And I cannot imagine that going from yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me, hanging out with the boys on equal footing to respectable matron was an easy transition. I mean, Donal or Flaherty had a notorious hair trigger temper anyway, and he was sort of a neighborhood, I don't want to say ne'er-do-well because he's a rich man, but he was a bully, like always at it with the neighbors over property lines you know, for example, mm -hmm. and any number of other ridiculous things. Grania, doing her duty, did have two sons, Owen and Morrow. I'm not going to spell them for you. And a daughter that she named Margaret after her mother. So requirements, really, check. And you know what? Mr. Grania was gone. A lot. <laughs> yeah. And what is an ambitious lady to do with her time? Well, slowly take the reins of power 
and get back to the business of pirating. You got to fill your day. Yeah. Well, and there was boats and they were sitting there and they were lacking leadership and she had those skills. So why not put them to use? Well, Grania got the loyalty of her husband's men in a way that would be hard to understand if we didn't know how she grew up. She was charming and shrewd and that'll get you a certain distance. But most importantly, she walked the talk. This culture wanted its leaders to be alphas. The smell of fear meant you were mocked and Grania commanded respect and just won them over. She and her men, I'm going to say her men at this point, technically, legally, they were still her husband's. She and her men would watch for ships headed specifically to Galway, which was the local merchant town, forbidden to them. Her ships would just swoop out, demand tribute, then whoosh off into uncharted waters full of dangerous rocks and currents with the Galway merchant's property. Hey ho! They were guilty of killing resistors. Don't get me wrong. This was not a bloodless endeavor. But Galway's always been a thorn in the O and Mac clan's sides anyway. It's a particular satisfaction to be wrecking up their livelihoods. It was so common, in fact, that this would happen, that the leaders of Galway took the extraordinary step of complaining to the English, who really only had political control over Dublin and right around that. It took a lot for an Irish city to complain to the English, really, oppressors. Although it must be said, Galway, how can I put this, was... Hmm. More District 2 from the Hunger Games. The most favored area of the Irish. Special concessions and deals had been made, much to Galway's advantage. But Irish, all the same. More English than most areas of Ireland anyway. So maybe not so very strange that they would run to the English after all, now that I think about it. (laughs) I'm just trying to imagine the whole thing. Because she was doing all this pirating stuff. And on the other hand, she was a mom. She was like a working mom. Granted, she wasn't you know, involved in the day-to-day life of her children, but she had them. (laughs) They were her responsibility. You know, it was like uh, that song, you know, I can battle the clan, do, 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 take tolls when I can, do, 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 do. Oh my goodness. I have more verses, but I will keep them to myself. (laughs) I spend entirely too much time on this. (laughs) I'm just going to say that. (laughs) Why don't we print the lyrics in the show notes? Oh, that would be great. Well, old Henry VIII had declared himself King of Ireland when Grania was 11, but really hadn't seriously buckled down to iron out anything. You know, he had other problems going on in his life. And the most he'd done really is kind of have Irish chieftains swear fealty to him in exchange for backing and a British title. That's about as far as it had gone. Some did, some didn't. And it really didn't touch either Grania or really her geographical area at all. Mm-hmm. But when Queen Elizabeth took over and gave a minor O'Flaherty official dominion over the land that Grania's husband was due to inherit, as you can imagine, this caused a bit of a rift in the in-law situation. Just as Queen Elizabeth intended, I think, divide and conquer. But as it turns out, Grania didn't really have to deal with that at all. Her husband's arch enemies, the Joyces, he is like a bar fighting fool. I'll tell you that right now. He's <laughs> after these Joyces all the time. Because I hate you. It was not, you know, and they hated him back just as evilly. Well, they got hold of him one day. This is like Hatfields and McCoys. Imagine if a McCoy got over into the Hatfield area and they got a hold of him. So they got a hold of him. And uh, shall we say he was no more? 
details really not available or even necessary, I don't think. Um, They rushed home to take back a fortress that he had taken from them, um, probably skipping and dancing and singing some version of Ding Dong, the cock is dead, because they called him the cock. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, my goodness. Nicknames are everything, aren't they? The castle in question was actually called Cox Castle. That's C-O-C-K-S. How else would it be? C-O-X, which is not as funny. Okay, no, because <laughs> I'm looking at my notes. I'm like, that's how it's spelled. <laughs> yeah. So uh, many layers of meaning here. Well, much to their unhappy surprise, Grania was there and rebuffed the Joyces with such force and followers that they run away. <laughs> and now and forevermore, that castle is called Hen's Castle, a fact I think is so delightful, I can hardly bear it. (laughs) I agree. I agree. It kind of established a pattern for her and that when someone she loves is murdered, she wants revenge. She wants to avenge their death right away. (laughs) It is really saying something about her life as a whole that that is a pattern. (laughs) When someone she loves is murdered, then this happens. Oh, you know, just like last time. Yeah. So. That's what happened. So now she has no husband, and this is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what happens in the next chapter of Grania's life. is now a widow, and the law being what it was about women bosses, once Donal was gone, Grania the widow found herself out of a position, all her positions. Um, Queen Elizabeth's nominee moved in and took over as the overlord, and one of Donal's cousins was voted in his place as the heir. Grania's sons were defrauded of their inheritance, for now. And In Ireland, sons were not automatically necessarily in line to inherit their father's titles and lands. This was a voting in the best candidate or the most political candidate situation, which if you think about it from a public service standpoint, was probably better. (laughs) Oh, I think so. Oh, I think so. Because at least you get someone who um, wants the job mm-hmm. rather than has it handed to them. And they've and yeah. been kind of working for it. Yeah. So, you know, they've proven themselves or whatever. And I can't complain about that system. We have ended up with some mighty great winners because of primogeniture. So uh, anyway, she seems to have fostered her two sons out traditional placement for her sons, then decided to head back to her father's dominion and start over, back to the island of her birth. She brought her daughter Margaret, the three dowry ships she'd taken into her marriage, I'm assuming cows, sheeps, and a large portion of her husband's men, the tough kind you need for conquering and set about recovering her own destiny. There were hard-won battles and just sheer ownership of the ocean and her empire grew. She gathered an army of hundreds of men from assorted clans. I think that is so interesting. I completely agree. Just the fact that the O'Flaherty clansmen followed her to a different clan, they're loyal to her now. That tells you so much about her leadership abilities, you know? Well, her reputation did precede her everywhere. Mm -hmm. And 
all these men from any number of other clans not only were willing to serve under a woman's rule, they sought her out and volunteered, asked to be part of the team. (laughs) I think even any man would have trouble keeping order among these sorts of guys. These clans do not like to be told what to do. I'll tell you that right now. But Grania, ever the good boss, was quoted as saying, I'd rather have a ship full of Conroys and McNallys than a ship full of gold. And I think just having a boss that would say a thing like that about you mm-hmm. is rare and and yeah. quite amazing for this time period. And that that particular quote has lasted all these years. That says a lot. What else was she saying? I kept seeing the word charismatic over and over again. So she must have had some kind of power over these people. It's just amazing. Well, and I do think results are also important because her crew was good at piracy, (laughs) was good at legit commerce, whatever it took. Just the sheer amassing of wealth is a good testament (laughs) to her (laughs) leadership capability. (laughs) And that will make you stick around. Uh, A significant bonus? Well, I guess I'm staying. And street cred. Um, Ocean cred. (laughs) (laughs) At the end of a period of some years, she either had control of or outright owned a series of strategically placed castle fortresses along the rocky shores of a place called Clue Bay. And I think there's only two of them left now. Um, Clare Island... There's one and then a one on Eccle Island that I can't say the name of the actual castle. I'm leaving that to the Google box. I'll put them on the <laughs> Pinterest. Um, I think there's two left of those original five here in 2018. I wanted to tell you a couple of stories about Grania from this time when she was operating as a single lady <laughs> out and about. <laughs> this is folklore again. She was on her way to church. When a rumor came that an English ship had wrecked off the coast, the allure of salvage. Is it thievery? Is it is salvage the rule of the ocean? I guess I don't know. Yeah. Yes. If the ship is wrecked, it's fair game. As far as I understand, that's why all the divers go for. That's what I learned from Fool's Gold. You know, that movie with Matthew McConaughey and Kate Hudson. No. Yeah. If it's in the water, it's open for anybody. And this was a wreckage. Man, like even five minutes after it crashes. Well, sure. A guy can't walk around and pick up his belongings. (laughs) These are people that live in the gray land. You know, this is not this is not a black or white issue. So and it had wrecked on her island. You know, this is her waters, her home waters. She controls it. Well, she turned her ships around. Church be danged, you know. And sure enough, she found a booty and another kind of booty because they're the survivor. (laughs) Oh, and you don't have to explain like my galley joke. (laughs) (laughs) No. Well, I just will say that there was a man. (laughs) There was a survivor on the rocks, uh, literally on the rocks. One Hugh DeLacy, son of an English merchant with whom she became, if not, quote, in a relationship, at least became it's complicated. She may have had a child by this man. No evidence has surfaced. There's a lot of uh, talk of a child out of wedlock at some point during this era. Yes. But anyway, the neighbors weren't having this Englishman among them. Sorry, Grania, chieftain, no. And they killed him. Poor boyfriend. He was just out hunting. He was just looking for some deer, you know, to bring some meat home. And he gets killed. <laughs> well, also poor him. He got shipwrecked. 
<laughs> so he's not had a good year. No. Well, she waited and watched until this family that had killed him went someplace and then took their boats right from in front of them, killed the actual murderers of her lover, and for good measure, went over and took over their castle too. Do not cross me. My name is Granuel. You killed my boyfriend. Prepare to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and again, this is... Somebody she loves or is infatuated with is murdered, so she goes to seek revenge, as is her now her way. Okay, but get this here. This adds a little color to the scenario. Once, during a stop near Dublin, so dangerous, to take on water and supplies, Grania stopped at the castle of Baron Hoth to stay the night and have dinner. There is a traditional unwritten law in Ireland of this time. One clan chief accommodates another. The end. Hospitality is a requirement. But the Dublin lords, even the old families, were far more aligned with the English. We are not playing games with barbarians. And the gates stayed closed. A message came out to families at dinner. Bzzz, you know, waving, <laughs> waving their hand, walk away. Grania was infuriated. Oh, don't make her infuriated. And hey, ran into the grandson of Lord Hoth on her way out. So she took the boy away with her. So with her reputation, imagine the terror at having his grandson under her power. I mean, she's willing to take people's castles and land and ships and cut off their head and any manner of things because she's been insulted. He followed as close as he dared and sent an offer of gold for a ransom. She's a pirate. That's a language these people understand. But she surprised him. I don't want gold. I want you to learn a lesson about being a good human being. My friend, Lord Hoth, don't lock those gates. And I want you to promise me to always set an extra place at your table Every day, in case anyone ever asks you for your hospitality again. R really? He's like, that's, <laughs> yes, that's what I want. Here's your grandson. And to this day, listeners and friends at Hoth Castle, they don't close the old gates. And there's always set an extra place at meals in 2018. That is I a serious Grania echo. <laughs> I love that. I love that because she could show that, you know, she can solve her problems by violence, but she could also solve them by her words. Brilliant. And maybe she didn't have otherwise beef with Hoth. Maybe True. he hadn't done anything to her. So maybe this was like, this is the first encounter we have. Let me tell you <laughs> how it's going to go. <laughs> so good for him. Good for everybody. And good for his story, because I love that. There's also, by the way, a Grace O'Malley Street in Dublin around the Earl of Hoth's residence. And it is a freaking expensive place to buy a house. And oh. I think people in bigger cities in America won't be surprised. But here in the Midwest, like I just looked up and I'll post in the show notes this real estate listing. There's a house that's not even a detached one. I guess they call him a terrace house. Um, it does have a pink door. That's cute. But it's uh, like 600,000 and it's not big. Sounds like one of those places they go on those HGTV shows. Those house hunters. Oh, yeah. Where people are like, I make hats for mice out of thread. And my husband is a cheese farmer. And we <laughs> have a budget of $19 million. That's right. <laughs> and I don't like this wallpaper. <laughs> I don't like that pink door. 
Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, back to Grania and her operations. She pretty well had control of Clue Bay, at least the ocean side, but the one castle overlooking the bay on the interior, which I'm going to anglicize to its name of Rockfleet because I don't think I can say its Irish name. This is as close as I'm getting. Caracahooly. Oh, wow. That's more than I was willing to write down because I just wrote down Rockfleet because I'm like, oh, good. I can relate to those words. (laughs) Well, anyway, this castle, regardless of its name, was going to be key for storm protection and for total control of the bay itself. How am I going to get my hands on this? I tell you what, as a female chief... I am in this ridiculously unique position to try a different tactic than usual. Hmm. Forget war. Bring me my horse. Knock, knock, Richard Burke. Richard in iron. Owner of my desired property, though we're keeping that part on the down low. Why don't we get married and combine our power? And he signs up for it. Sure, let's do that. And they arrange this marriage. She goes into it as is custom and allowable, saying, we have a one-year commitment. I will give you a year. After that, if it's not working out, we can just part, go our separate ways, keep everything we brought into the marriage. It'll be fine. So they go throughout the year. Through that time, Grania is bringing her fleet into the protected waters of Rockfleet Castle. Rockfleet Castle is on the mainland and it's behind a whole bunch of other little islands. So you can't really see it from the ocean. It's not as uh, exposed as Clare Island is where she had been. So all of her fleet is going there. And as soon as she gets them all there, she gets Richard to go on a little business trip. And while he's gone, she locks him out of the house, screaming out the window, I divorce you, Richard, in iron, which is all she needs to say, according to law, to complete the divorce. Whether this happened or not, I don't know. But it's a good story. (laughs) You can see the drama of it. The accounts do not agree in any way here. Some reports, even from Ireland, will say there's no record of trial marriages lasting a year. And others will be like, this is definitely what happened. So there's grains of salt. Let's call it sea salt um, on this whole scenario. But kids, I can totally see her doing the flinging his things onto the lawn part. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Richard and Grania, however, at least marketed and presented themselves as married for the rest of his life. So divorced or not sort of makes no never mind. I do like that story, though. It just says so much that she was probably really like that to do something so ballsy. So even if it's not true, it's consistent with her, uh, you know, her character. Also, he was the hammer. He was a man of action. He was no dope, but he didn't have her political acumen. So it was a good partnership. And he relied on her to tell him, you know, okay, your interpretation of this is what, because to me, I just want to thump him kind of thing, which is such a refreshing change from the first bar fight husband who would like go off half cocked at every occasion. So it's a good partnership stuff on the lawn or not. So you can go through the castle at Rockfleet, where she lived off and on for the rest of her life. And you can see her bedroom on the fourth floor, where you have a thin window that they will tell you that accommodated a long rope that was tied to Grania's bed, then all the way out to the harbor and tied to her favorite galley, um, like an early security system. <laughs> this castle was had a lot of little security systems. One of them was the bottom two floors were utilitarian. They were for storage and for worky stuff. The residence was on the top floors. To get to the upper floor, the very top floor where her bedroom was, there was a stone spiral staircase. It was designed so that anybody 
intruding into the castle had to use a left-handed sword to be able to defend themselves on that stairway. And there's not a lot of left-handed people. So I thought that was an amazing piece of security measure right there. That just reminds me again of The Princess Bride. I am not actually left-handed or whatever. (laughs) Neither am I or however that went. Uh, Well, anyway, she's back. She's back in business, taking names, taking cargo, being her usual bad self, even while pregnant with her fourth child, Tybalt. I prefer to refer to him as Tybalt. Everyone knows him as Toby. But mm. he was born below decks on the eve. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm laughing because I referred to him as Toby. That was the name. I was like, oh, okay, I like that name. But I can switch to Tybalt. No problem. I'm adaptable. Well, he was born below decks on the eve of a battle. According to legend, Algerian pirates stormed her ship and her men are like shrieking down the ladder for help. And I'm sure while muttering something very mom-like under her breath, like, can I not just take... One freaking five-minute break without somebody needing me for something. This battle I'm seeing as the extreme version of all those little fingers and eyeballs under the bathroom door. She got up. She got dressed. She got hold of her weaponry and went up on deck to join the battle after her eight-hour maternity leave. (laughs) It's just miraculous. But... Flip side, that probably gave her a little additional anger turning the battle into her favor. I could see where she'd get a little extra motivation from that. (laughs) Poor everybody. Who was watching Tybalt downstairs? I don't know. Cabin boys? Nobody? Well, Queen Elizabeth over in England had decided to stop playing around. She sent a man named Sir Henry Sidney to be the Lord Deputy. And that name doesn't sound as powerful as it is. Lord Deputy is like Viceroy. He equals the boss of Ireland if the queen is not on its soil. So big title, big man. Uh, So when Grania was 35 was the first time he came and he came over with this mission. And I quote him, if you will give the people justice and law, exercise the sword of the sovereign and drive this man of war who lives like a lord until he lives like a servant, he will spend his money not on weapons or in armor, but on building towns and houses. Like, will he or will everybody be dead? Okay. And then he got there to Ireland and started applying what he called the sword of the sovereign all over the place, laying waste to the countryside and the people, leaving really nothing behind for anyone who managed to survive. He said, the weakest, maddest, wildest Celts were now aware that the English could crush them as the lion crushes the jackal. So the hammer of Queen Elizabeth had been gone for a while, but now he was back in Ireland. And it was weird timing for Grania's family, too. There was a succession crisis in her husband Richard's clan. Richard's chief had been pressured into taking one of those deals. So he was now a possessor of an English title. Technically, according to English law, the next guy to inherit should be eldest male descendant, like in England. Well, I don't know, because according to Irish law, Richard was going to be the heir to the next guy. So a variation of this exact same scenario had happened in her first marriage, which is why her sons had been defrauded of their 
rightful Irish inheritance by the representative of Queen Elizabeth. And so here it was happening again to her second family. She had to think of anything she could do to mitigate these circumstances and maybe put in a good word for her husband as a possible English candidate too. Seems like if you can't beat him, you have to join him at least in public. Grania decided to take matters into her own hands and met with Sir Henry Sidney herself, offering the services of, quote, three galleys and 200 fighting men for his own personal use and working that magical charm situation on him. He called her, quote, a most feminine sea captain and the most notorious woman in all the coasts of Ireland. <laughs> so he knew. He had her number. He wrote back home about her, but never got to do more than a three-hour tour of Galway with her because not too long after this, on a marauding trip, let's be honest, she was captured by her intended victim. I don't want to bring in too many names exactly, but this is a man named Lord Desmond who was under Queen Elizabeth's suspicious eye. Queen Elizabeth is the most paranoid, I mean, with just cause, but the most paranoid queen you will ever read about. And she kept asking him, like, are you loyal to me? How can I believe you, Lord Desmond? What are you doing over there? I might have to send some people and uh, check you out. And he's like, uh, uh, here, 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 look who I just put in jail for you. My, uh, my queen, the notorious pirate, Granny O'Malley, disturber of your majesty's peace. Here, look, 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 shiny thing. And it worked. <laughs> it did. When Queen Elizabeth received that information... As, quote, the gift of Garanya the pirate, she was transported to a prison in Dublin. Here's the thing. It's the heart of English rule in Ireland. And she went to a place where only important prisoners were held. So her fame precedes her <laughs> status, even in jail. All of this was unimaginably grim to a person used to the freedom of the open ocean and to her will being her own law. This was horrifying. Now, we have to remember her lifestyle though how many people had she personally killed or robbed of their livelihoods we're all indignant on her behalf but she belongs in jail mm -hmm. <laughs> oh <just> I know. <laughs> we like her we understand her like stuff but come on she you know and i'm not exactly sure why she didn't suffer worse punishment than being confined in a dungeon frankly they had been hauling people to england for public execution all over the place to make examples of them in um in ireland well also, it's not clear why she was released after year number two. The Lord Judge sent for her just out of the blue one day and said he'd let her go. All she had to do was swear she'd stop her piratin'. Well, here she is. She's a 50-year-old woman. So I'm going to guess they thought there was a couple of different options, but maybe that she had done her time, that she was no longer a threat. She's 50. The life expectancy of a woman at this time was 40. So she's like living on borrowed time with a hard life. She's just spent two years in prison. She's done. She's not going to pirate anymore. <laughs> I'm always interested in that life expectancy thing because it seems like childbirth is where you'd be dead. Yes. I'm sure that does bring the age down. And if you made it through your childbearing years, I almost think you had a free ride. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Although most 50-year-olds are not climbing, rigging, and you know, shooting people in the face. Yeah, she's been outside her whole life, you know, salt water, sun, wind. She's probably looking a little um, uh, low maintenance. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, so she's standing there in front of the judge, sort of in disbelief that this was going to be this easy here at the end. Uh, okay, this 
agreement isn't going to last the second I cross the plane of this doorway. I'm going to cross my fingers, but of course, sir. Yes, sir. Anything you say. Freedom. Freedom. She's free. She headed over to Rockfleet, pursued there, in fact, by a troop of guys after her to make her pay for all those attacks on shipping near Galway. Your fault for not letting the O's and Max into town in the first place, Galwegians. I had to look that up. <laughs> Galwegians. Their leader, one Captain Martin, not Captain Morgan, as I thought would be better. <laughs> Uh, he thought a simple siege was going to get it done. I don't know where he's been, what rock he was hiding under. Frankly, he was lucky to escape with his life at all. The last Galwegians who had tried to hole her up in a siege had Grania and a few of her men trapped in Hen's castle. Here's that again. And so Grania and her men went and wrenched all the lead off the roof, melted it down, and poured it all over the heads of the men down below. Yeah, she set off a fire beacon as a signal to her men all the way down the coast. You know, one beacon lit the next beacon, lit the next beacon. And here's all these men swarming in and dealing with all the leftover survivors. You do not mess with the pirate queen. Next time, perhaps an ear to the ground, a word to the wise. <laughs> no kidding. She hadn't been doing her punishment in those two years. She's just been resting. Now she's, <laughs> she's back. She's had her little break. She had a vacation, <laughs> a vacation in a dungeon. But <laughs> yeah, yep. she came back with power. So Richard's clan chief, the McWilliam is what they called him, he died and the succession again was between England's candidate, you know, the eldest relative, and Mr. Grania, just like they feared would happen all that long time ago. But Grania and Richard decided to fight for it and they showed up with thousands of men and there were there were a series of battles royale, shall I say. Um, Richard almost lost at one point. Everybody almost lost at one point. But ultimately, the British were fighting on too many fronts to deal with this. And this is a technique they used a couple of times um, throughout Irish history. If you can't beat them, join them kind of fashion. They made a deal with the aggressor. Okay, okay, okay. We're going to give you a title. Just stop fighting. <laughs> And then they also, this was kind of rare, they said, not only I'm going to give you a title, Sir Richard Burke, you can be the McWilliam. We'll acknowledge that you're the chief of your clan. So he was legitimate from both Irish and English viewpoints. That's that quite a position to be in. He had to toe the line with tribute and loyalty to the queen, though, at least on the open face of it. You know what? That's a deal. I'll take it. That's the best possible outcome of all of this. So Grania was Lady Burke now. I know, Lady Burke. Just a, you think of her as this pirate, this you know menacing person, and then you put a lady in front of it, and with his last name, <laughs> not the one that she was able to keep, you know, O'Malley. And Richard was referred to in dispatches back to England as quote the husband of Grania O'Malley. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh Mr. Lucille Ball all over again. Thank you. That's what I exactly what I was thinking. Although in this situation, I think he was probably okay with it, right? I think I mean, maybe, he's okay with it. Yeah, and maybe he didn't know it. You know, True. they didn't say that to his face, unlike they, you know, unlike they did to Ricky. Desi. <laughs> Even his first name's gone now. Well, after all of this, and not very long after the triumph, actually, uh, Richard died unbelievably of natural causes after all this. Just like when I move furniture all day and then I break a nail throwing away a napkin. You know, really? He died in his bed. I know. 
after all that fighting, he was in that position for about three years. And that was it. And she was back to widowhood. (laughs) Well, all right. There goes husband number two. We are now a widow for a second time. It's time to take a break. And when we come back, we will see how the endgame plays out. Grania has lost one very important man in her life, but another man is about to appear, and it's not quite an even exchange. <laughs> Grania did inherit property from her husband. Uh, as was law, she was entitled to a third of his property, so she did get that. She had her own lands that she had brought into the marriage that she had inherited from her side of the family. So she was able to, you know, she walked away from that marriage with quite a uh, pile of wealth behind her. She did take care, I will say, to seize her inheritance ahead of people coming to take it from her. She had no faith that her rights were going to be upheld. Mm -mm. Well, they weren't the last time with her Mm -hmm. first husband. So there's, you know, she had no reason to believe they would be. But and she's so much smarter now. I mean, she's 53 at this point. So she's smarter and wiser and has a lot of experience under her belt. And she knew what to do. She actually never called herself a pirate. She said her business was, quote, maintenance by land and sea. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that a nice way to put it? (laughs) Well, and think about this. So she has a career. Maintenance, of course. (laughs) A fortified castle, a fleet, livestock, a following, a lot of money, and no master. If we could just stop here, wouldn't that be glorious? No, we cannot. Because Queen Elizabeth and her advisors were determined to handle this Irish problem once and for all. A couple of officials were sent to handle it. And while one was upending a millennium of traditions and forcing new concessions from the clans every day, the other one, Sir Richard Bingham was focused on Grania O'Malley personally. This notorious O'Malley is too much of a rallying point for him, but slippery, so slippery, too hard to find. Her son wasn't, though. One of the very first things he did upon arrival was locate her youngest son, Tybalt, and put him under arrest, where he stayed for over a year. It was very common in, uh, even while suing for peace, you took hostages to ensure that it would stick. Well, he decided to go ahead and get his hostage first. Well, this guy has a very long military history. You know, he fought in a lot of battles and led men into battles. He was described as a man eminent both in spirit and martial knowledge, but very small in stature. (laughs) Imagine that king in Shrek. (laughs) You know what? I actually think that is really good because he's like... I don't know, venal and horrible and small minded, I think, although his fellow um, courtiers always thought he was kind of like the homeowners association. Like, really? I know there's a rule, but you don't have to cross it off and then measure the line. (laughs) That's true. I think he came to Ireland with a prejudice against the Irish. And right from the get go, he said that the Irish were never tamed by words, but with swords. So that's how he went blazing in. (laughs) 
Well, during another, yet another, I might say, McWilliam succession problem, Bingham's brother and his men arrived at the land of Grania's oldest son, Owen, and acted all friendly. He had removed himself and his cows and everything to an island because that's what soldiers do. They commandeer your items for their own use and cart them away. But they convinced him, I just, you know, we're so hungry. I'm tired, blah, blah, blah. And he innocently offered to feed and house them. They turned on him in the night, accusing him in a kangaroo-type court situation that reminds me of Anne Boleyn's trial, by the way, of aiding and abetting rebels against the crown. There is no evidence of this, by the way. Um, While he was tied up with lots of rope, someone stabbed Owen 12 times, and this was later explained by the British as, quote, a foiled escape attempt. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, he tied himself up with those ropes. Twelve stabs. Hmm. Of course, Grania fought back. Man, not only is she mad, she's heartbroken. She pulled in all her connections and favors. Scottish mercenaries, NATO ride, supplies, offers of sea support, and also tactical knowledge and support. So word came from Bingham. Oh, we understand. Normally, we'd be really mad about the Scottish mercenary thing. That's treasonous. I get it. I, you're heartbroken. You're a mother. You just didn't realize your son was such a dirtbag. Um, we're going to give you our protection, but you need to kind of come closer to where we are. We'll give you safe passage and then we'll set you up in an accommodation. And I'm not sure what circumstances led her to fall for this, but she did. Like the dangling of a full pardon. I don't know. Of course, it was an ambush and she and her followers were taken into custody. Well, and they called it, and this is under English law, drawing in the Scot. So if you did transport or hire Scottish mercenaries, you know how Queen Elizabeth feels about Mary, Queen of Scots, and the threat from the Scottish in general. Um, All of that fraternizing was illegal. And they hadn't caught her at it this time, but she did have a history of it. And that was kind of enough for him. She was charged with treason and sentenced to death. Bingham had gallows built especially for her. He pointed out the window and said, you hear that hammering? That's your gallows. I'm building it for you. Watch that happen. She was released, most unlikely, but true, into the custody of an Irish nobleman, a different Richard Burke, known throughout Ireland by the name The Devil's Hook, who was her son-in-law. Little Margaret had married a man called The Devil's Hook? (laughs) In my mind, he looks like Carl Drogo (laughs) from Game of Thrones. Yeah, there's a lot of Game of Thrones in this whole story, isn't there? I That never occurred to me until just this moment. Thank you. <laughs> so I am not sure why they took his word unless he was just ready to thump someone. And they're like, whatever. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, maybe. Or maybe they couldn't tie him to her. You know, maybe he was playing along under the radar. So when he came and said, I'll take care of her, she'll be under my custody. They were like, okay, that's fine. I oh. Yeah. That's even that is weak. That's one of those dot, 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 and she was released situations. Well, the second she was released, off she went to sea to exile. As it turned out, her ships were damaged in a storm and she had to tie up in a normally unfriendly area of Ireland. But over the course of the months where she was stranded there, she kind of made a little confab with some fellow enemies of the English. So it all worked out. (laughs) 
Bingham was actually recalled out of the country, and Grania took this chance to cruise in to his... Um, remember, there were two officials. One came and did the paperwork, and one came and did the sword work, you know? Well, the paperwork guy hated the heck out of Bingham. You know, his fellow officials just didn't like him. And Grania knew of this and went and got a full pardon from that guy for all her past misdeeds. And also, how about Devil's Hook and my daughter, both my living sons, just everybody, just we get a full pardon. And the guy's like, will that make Bingham mad? Yes, it will. Fine. They were actually playing kind of good cop, bad cop unintentionally because this guy was more diplomacy minded, Mm. whereas Bingham was more sword and musket minded. Yeah, I think the other official was more like, will it make this noise go away out of my office? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's good. Well, let's do that. (laughs) So here is where our shows on Queen Elizabeth, episodes 43 and 44, seems like a long time ago, and the story of Grania O'Malley intersect. Because what was coming up the ocean but the Spanish Armada. They were coming to lay waste to Queen Elizabeth's England. 134 ships, 30,000 men. Well, that looks like an inevitable force, doesn't it? But the weather conspired against the Spanish, who were wrecked, who were dispersed, who were taken apart. The Spanish Armada was defeated, mostly by wind, rain, and fire. And the ocean. Because With all the English standing on the, on the shore going, yes, we did it. We did it. Well, 26 of the unfortunate Armada ships were wrecked on the Irish coast. And it's too bad for them because they were preyed upon by the Irish who were accustomed to the laws of salvage. They were also hunted by the English. Survivors just really had no chance at all. Mm -mm. No, but there was a couple little things that were thrown into the story that had me going, oh, that's true. Grania was not a fan of the English, right? But she had been doing business with the Spanish for years. And I just, I don't know. I want to say that she, there was some rumors that maybe her people rescued some of the Spanish sailors and took them to Scotland where they could meet up with other Spanish ships. I just feel like at this point, she would be doing something to help the Spanish uh, and, you know, stick it to the English as much as possible. Yes, there was a ship called El Gran Grin, specifically that local Irish people kind of, quote, knew that Grania had taken all those survivors on the DL to Uh safe passage in Scotland where they could await rescue. Uh Um, The English, of course, said she killed them all. Like that was going to add to her, quote, bad reputation. That is not going to tarnish this reputation, English people. Um, She may not, in fact, have been there at all. (laughs) Uh, Any chief who had harbored Spanish people was a traitor. His goods were forfeit to the crown and his life. So it's actually kind of good they're marketing her as a big murderer, I guess, because it saved her from being a big traitor. <laughs> That's such a better crime. <laughs> Bingham and Grania were just bosom enemies. I, You know, he would torture Leanne. She had him brought up on charges in England of cruelty. And you know what? He does seem cruel. A lot of his behavior to modernize seems like, what the heck? But if you look at his contemporaries, it was a cruel time and cruel behavior was just accepted. You know, uh, you don't like a guy and he's run away with all his men. You kill all the women and children and also take the cows and also burn the crops. That's horrible. But Bingham's not the only one doing it. That's all I'm saying. You know, he's not badder than other people, but he is bad. 
um, he turned her own son, Moro, against her, and she decided to level her own son's domain, which actually shocked England so badly that uh, she wasn't going to let that slide. I don't think she had much of a choice. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Back and forth, back and forth. Ultimately, Bingham managed to get in and totally destroy Grania's fleet beyond repair. Their history had Bingham and Grace this whole period of time. It's kind of like one victory for one side, one victory for the other, back and forth for 10 years. This is the 10-year point, and she's done. Well, all each of them wanted was the complete and utter eradication of the other. No compromise. I want you you know, dead and your ashes scattered in a horrible location. Like, I don't even care what happens to you. Um, It really had gotten to be that bad. So she decided to go over Bingham's head and just, you know, woman chief to woman chief, write to Queen Elizabeth herself. And it was a very long note, sort of glossing over her 40 years of activity, actually, as um, safeguarding the maintenance of my people and my country. That's as far as that went. <laughs> and then it went all personal in the note. You know, here's the story about my family and... The world is just difficult for a widow person. You know, you know how it is, ladies in the world of men. I have an idea, she said, and I quote, although I have fixed the grammar a little. Grant unto your said subject, under your most gracious hand, free liberty during her life to invade with sword and fire all of your highness's enemies without any interruption of any person whatsoever. That is to say... Let me go back to pirating, but without old Bingham stepping on my neck. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. She was asking for the property of her sons to go into her son's name under English law. Grania could see it on the writing on the wall. When the inevitable came and England took control over all of Ireland, her family would be protected. Her family was always her focus. You know, she would do anything for them. And so that was her bargaining chip. She said, if you give them this land and put it in their name, I will be your servant and slaughter people for you. (laughs) Now, it's not like Elizabeth didn't already have pirates working for her. I'm sorry to say that Sir Francis Drake, reformed pirate, was responsible for wiping out a big part of the McDonald clan over in Ireland on Queen Elizabeth's behalf. Sir Walter Raleigh, erstwhile boyfriend and renowned sea dog had a special pirating license from Queen Elizabeth called a letter of Mark. That's spelled M-A-R-Q-U-E. So obviously he was a pirate with his pinky up. So Grania's applying for a position with Queen Elizabeth in this regard is not as foolish or even as unlikely as it sounds to us. It's like a known career trajectory. Bingham's arrest of her son Tybalt for treason made the whole letter writing thing not enough. Um, It really sent her to London. Ultimately, they didn't meet in London, but sent her to England to make her case in person to Queen Elizabeth herself. She went through an introduction, a friend of a friend, to Queen Elizabeth's advisor, William Cecil, who responded with a worksheet (laughs) Um, for her to fill out. It was called the 18 Articles and was really disappointing to me. Um, We'll put them or at least link to them. It really boiled down to what relation are you to this guy? You know, who owns this castle? Tell me about your biography. It's very dry. I don't know, but something about her answers or her reputation, or here's what I think. The fact that Bingham hurried and sent a note ahead, 
from himself that basically said, don't listen to anything this person says about me. She's the authoress of trouble in Ireland for the past 40 years. Neener, neener, neener. She's a liar. She's a this. She's a the thing and the thing. So like, oh, okay, really? If you're that afraid of what she's going to say, maybe I have to hear what she's got to say. <laughs> yeah, I think that there was everything in Grania's favor to have Elizabeth grant her an audience. You know, they were about the same age. Elizabeth was only three years younger than her. You know, they were both um, leaders. And and then, of course, like you just said, Bingham was very nervous. <laughs> <laughs> so in July of 1593, Grania was admitted to the presence of Her Majesty. And if you read notes and letters of the time, they always abbreviate this to matey, M-A-T-I-E, which I'm like, why would you call Queen Elizabeth your matey? It, I had a difficult time for a while until I realized it was majesty. <laughs> You're matey. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Uh, well, my goodness. So they regarded each other. Both of them used to being the only woman in a man's world, for real. Both of them accustomed to being obeyed. Both famous for their charm. But Grania had experience, though, and a lack of fear. Queen Elizabeth, I don't think, had lived a day without fear. Honestly, I'm surprised she could even eat food. Her ulcers must have been enormous. <laughs> her visitor, Grania, had led her men in battle directly. She was a warrior queen. She had had kind of a glorious existence in the way that I think Queen Elizabeth often had wished for and never was able to have. She never had a husband. She could never have children. She could only hold on to her throne by subterfuge and playing people off each other and not getting married. Whereas Grania had kind of had the whole package. As tough as it was, she had had a full a life, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Unfortunately, the actual details of their meeting are lost to history. There are some legends that are out there that are quite entertaining, I guess, um, <laughs> that uh, Grania came in and didn't bow or curtsy to the queen because in her head, she was a queen too. So why would she, you know, submit to another queen, right? Or the one, Grania was handed a linen handkerchief to take care of some sniffling. She blew her nose and threw the handkerchief into the fire, much to the gasping of Elizabeth. And Grania had to say, well, you know, that's what we do in Ireland. It's considered dirty at that point. We don't keep dirty things in our hand. I don't know yeah. what you do here, but mm, that's gross, man. <laughs> There's even question about what language they spoke. A lot of sources say that they both would have gone in and spoke Latin. Some will say that Grania knew some English because she wrote some letters in English. That's not even like solid information that they both you know, spoke in their only common language, which was Latin because Grania spoke Gaelic and Elizabeth spoke English. I would be surprised if... Both of them didn't speak some Spanish. True. That would be surprising to me, um, knowing that Elizabeth was a super brainiac and had had Philip around in her orbit for a long time. And then mm -hmm. um, anyway, so either she spoke Latin or she didn't. I wish that the meeting had been televised, you know, <laughs> as they say. Um, but from some of Queen Elizabeth and William Cecil's papers, Elizabeth seems to have only called out one thing she considered a real crime, which was the fact that Grania had attacked her son Moreau's town. That seemed amazing to her and baffling to her. And she did canvas that a little bit. Otherwise, said Queen Elizabeth, you seem to have um, lived a little bit out of order at some times. 
<laughs> That's as far as she went. That's like Mary Berry on the Great British Baking Show. It's a little informal. It's a total mess. <laughs> Well, Elizabeth was just fascinated by Grania, her stories, her confident ways. She's not a supplicant, exactly. More like, you're a woman, you understand, sister. Let me tell you what's been going on out here in the real world, because I think you need to know. Bingham's a monster. I need you to save us all from him. The whole island would do better to have him gone. Also, she had some requests. Please pardon members of my family that he's got a hold of, especially my son, Tibbet, who is about to be executed unless you stop Bingham from doing that. Also, I need to make a living. So please, can I go back to the sea? I'll fight on your behalf. And you know I can because you've heard my reputation. And also she kind of played the small violin. Widows don't get an allowance. Solidarity among women. I need a little financial help here. Bingham freaked out upon hearing about this meeting and wrote a letter. You should never write a letter angry and send it. You should let it sit overnight. But he did not. He wrote a letter right out of his heart that is like, your majesty, seriously, she's the scourge of my life. You should just give me a boat so I can drive her and everyone she ever knows, all of her existence, right into the sea, right to the devil where she belongs. I'm like, woo, Grania's skill, piss artistry, the Irish would say, and Bingham's demands and indignation, that was a good combination to make Queen Elizabeth fall right on Grania's side. And Grania's wishes were granted. Not only were they granted, but they were granted in a letter that Grania got to return with to Ireland and give to Bingham herself. <laughs> Can you imagine that moment? Like, I'm like, oh, I'd really love to see the meeting between Grania and Elizabeth. But wait, <laughs> when Bingham gets this letter, that would be good to see, too. So Tibbet released. Provision was made to Grania from her son's property that had been released to them. But her provision was not deducted from the principal because I was like, what kind of benefit is that? Oh, no. But from the taxes, her sons were supposed to pay to the crown. So Queen Elizabeth was taking the hit. Mm -hmm. Cool, I thought. Yeah. Uh, also, she ordered Bingham directly to protect Grania and her family in their endeavors. Ah, uh, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> I have to say something funny that came out of this was this is how Queen Elizabeth said to Cecil about her decision. This is what she told him. Let us help this aged woman. <laughs> really? This aged woman? You're 60. She's 63. She's so much older. Now, I will say, yes, sun damage. A little bit of frown lines, perhaps. Um, we don't cover our face in white lead, but y'all are in the same generation. <laughs> yeah. Well, Grania probably came in like the low maintenance queen that she is, where we know how high maintenance Elizabeth was, too. So just the physical differences between the two of them. Someone should make this a movie. <laughs> yeah, I'll talk about that in media. Somebody has a wide open field. That's all I'm <laughs> yeah, saying about that. So Grania went back, as she has done numerous times, and rebuilt her fleet. Um, three galleons holding 300 men each. That is kind of an unprecedented level of galleon. But Bingham tried to find loopholes. How can I make her life hell without technically not doing what the queen said? So he made her attack her own relations. Well, they're Queen Elizabeth's enemies. 
So that was a little bit of a bummer. He also kind of put spies in her midst, his men to kind of report back everything she did. That's irritating. Even if you're not doing anything officially wrong, you don't want your enemies like, yes, man, sitting there questioning every dang thing you do. That's irritating. He quartered soldiers on her, too. Um, so depleted her resources by making her feed and house Queen Elizabeth's soldiers. She's supposed to be working for Queen Elizabeth. She should be glad to spend all her money to feed them. So she had to go back to court to complain to William Cecil again. And Bingham was ultimately removed from his position. Yay! So Grania went back to her career um, at the advanced age of 65. Maintenance by land and sea. Hmm. She was seen doing this maintenance up to about the age of 70. Um, that's as far as the records go. We're not sure what happened after that. Tybalt, however, navigated waters of his own and eventually became quite the power player in Irish politics, becoming later the first Viscount Mayo. So yeah, he was given an English title and quite a lot of respect later in his life so her all her effort on that son's behalf really paid off this is the kid that was born at sea and you know lived with his mom and saw everything that she did and followed it all and when he was held captive by the english they even taught him some english he could read and write it in a little bit so yeah he was smart and in a great position to get that uh no that prestige, I guess. Well, third time's the charm. I mean, the first one died in unfortunate circumstances. The second one betrayed her. So third son wins. Yeah, that's true. Grania did outlive Bingham by about six years. He had died battling the Irish. Ding dong. Cock number two is dead. (laughs) Just saying. Okay. I'm not sure if she ever danced on his grave or whatnot, but she did in her mind. That's true. So um, Grania's date and place and even method of death is kind of a mystery, but they can pinpoint the year. She did die the same year as Queen Elizabeth in 1603 at the age of 73. According to lore, she's buried on Clare Island. So she has come full circle to the island of her birth. Love it. And that will bring us to the end of the life of Grania O'Malley, also known by the English as Grace O'Malley. Okay, and now it's time for media. And as usual, we'll start with books, but not as usual. Let's just call it a short list. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Because I was putting together my list and I'm like, I don't like this one. I don't like this one. I liked certain things out of them, but I wouldn't recommend them. Except for I linked, I got three, which I think I was doing good. So the first and really only full biography that I found useful, although honestly, it's still a little confusing with regard to timeline and you had to cross-reference with some online references and other books, The True Story of Grace O'Malley, Ireland's Pirate Queen by Anne Chambers. And I think Anne Chambers is sort of globally the recognized authority on Grace O'Malley. I found this book a little hard to get through because there were a lot of names and place names and I didn't get a linear like timeline. But I did get a lot of information out of this book. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's the same one. No wonder our outlines were similar. Because <laughs> that's the one that I liked the most. That's the one that I would recommend. Definitely. I think there's a lot of editions of this out there, though. So maybe check the dates on it. Um, so again, we go back to Jason Porras' Rejected Princesses. He has a um, he has an entry on Grace O'Malley with some bullet points, um, including the story of her pouring lead on people's head. That is... <laughs> That is rough, man. 
And then there is a very well illustrated children's book called The Pirate Queen by Emily Arnold McCauley, which kind of has some narrative economy in the storyline. I can see why she did it to, you know, make the story shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wouldn't take it necessarily as gospel, but it's uh, there's some very bold colors and um, almost like impressionistic drawings and I really liked them. Anne Chambers also has a children's book, Gronuel, Sea Queen of Ireland. So the information in that is solid, I guess. So I would recommend that. I did find compilation books. And the one that I liked the most, I think it was a like a YA book because I got through it really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called uh, Pirate Women, the Princesses, Prostitutes, and Privateers Who Ruled the Seven Seas by Laura Cook Duncombe. And I think the information in that was pretty much aligned with uh, Ann Chambers, which is kind of I used that as the gold standard for this. And then as a little kid's book, I liked this one, Lives of Pirates, Swashbucklers, and Scoundrels by Kathleen Krall and Katherine Hewitt. When I first started this, okay, I grew up on the water. Pirates are real. Pirates are really bad. And (laughs) my parents have sailed all over the world and pirates are their number one fear, which is why for almost eight years, I've been so hesitant to cover any pirates, although we get, you know, requests for it. So when I saw that there was children's books and so many of them, I was baffled. (laughs) Well, I know we all think they're going to be like Jack Sparrow, uh, you know, funny and not too violent and very Disney-esque. But the fact is, that was a violent way of life. Mm -hmm. Like we said earlier, mm, Grande O'Malley deserved to be in jail for a lot of reasons. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, most definitely. (laughs) All right. Now, as to movies, honestly, I am telling you now, film students of America, there is a giant whole waiting for you to produce a quality film about Grania O'Malley. Mm-hmm. There is a, I, it has to be a student film that you can find. Um, I think it's online and I think it came out this year. I saw a chunk of it. I couldn't take too much, but it's Grania Whale, the movie, <laughs> which got me excited until I started to see that it had the acting and production values that $13,000 could get. <laughs> But the costumes were authentic, they said. So, yes, huge opening, huge opening and lots of story arcs in there. I just don't know. Can't you get that girl from Game of Thrones to pull it off? I and mean, you already have Carl Drogo and her address book. Well, um, the Discovery Channel has a documentary that is online and will link you up. And Lucy Lawless, who is, you know, Xena, Warrior Princess. <laughs> yeah. She's the host of it. And there's a section where she's got the swords because Grace, I, I, we didn't mention this, but she used two swords, not just one. You know, that was her method of fighting. You know, Xena got the, I'm oh, sorry, Lucy got the sword and she's like whipping it around. It was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. All right. And it was filmed in the area. So, you know, I always like to see, you know, we're, we're not, you can't see with us. So, but I like to see how it looks. <laughs> So I would recommend that. We'll link you up. Well, speaking of footage online, there is some drone footage. Um, I'm not sure if it is official or not, but the Eccle Island Castle is still in existence and someone flew a drone around it to the tune of classical music. So it is not um, going to impinge upon your brain or whatever, but it's really neat to see what it looks like from the air. So I'm going to link you to that. 
Also, there's a song from the Dreadnoughts called Grace O'Malley. Also, link you to that YouTube. We would be remiss not to send you to our archives to listen to episodes 43 and 44, Queen Elizabeth. Although, I will tell you, I do not believe we mentioned Grace O'Malley or Grania O'Malley in either of those episodes. I don't think we did either. Well, there was a lot to fit in in our defense. Yeah, and... You know, if we just talk about Ireland in general, that's what was Elizabeth. You know, our our shows are always based on our subjects view. And, you know, Grania was just a teeny tiny blip in Elizabeth's life. I, uh, okay, so I went on a little internet search to try to find places called Grace O'Malley, Grania O'Malley, or Granuale restaurants. And I just want to say most of them that have the menus online serve a thing called Irish nachos. So I'm not sure how authentic they are. (laughs) That's funny. But I think there's a lot of pubs named Grace O'Malley throughout the English-speaking world. Yes, and there is a restaurant actually in Ireland called Granuale, and they don't have their menu posted online. Damn it. So that's crazy. I looked all over the place. Um, So evidently, it's getting good ratings, but who's to say what they serve? I'm guessing not Irish nachos because it's in Ireland. But What is an Irish nacho? Like nachos, but you just put it on like french fries, like steak fries, chips, whatever. So you just make it on french fries instead of on tortilla chips. Okay. Well, actually, I've had that. I didn't realize that's what it was called. And there may be sausage substituted for the ground beef, but I don't even know that anyone goes that far. So I tried. I tried to bring you some authentic cuisine, but... <laughs> if you were to bring her authentic cuisine, there'd probably be a lot of, a lot of seafood, you know, lobster, <laughs> things with oh, exoskeletons. And they were, oh, yeah, things with exoskeletons. Uh, they also were very into mead. We didn't say that earlier, but yeah, they kept bees. And um, that area of Ireland was very known for the production and trade in that commodity. Yes. I wish I was hoisting a glass of it right now instead of this water. <laughs> I think it's too sweet for me. I like having it like at a Ren Fest or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. just to like make your taste buds match the outsides of your existence or whatever. But otherwise, I'm not a big fan of mead. Hmm. And then the last thing I have is that promised uh, real estate listing for Grace O'Malley Road in Dublin. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than some tourist traps that I just decided not to talk about. I don't have anything else. <laughs> yeah, there's some, you know, there's always things like bed and breakfast called Granuale. And um, there are lots of tour companies that will take you through the bay. Maybe we'll find a couple of those uh, more reputable things. And at least you can see their photography. Well, and then you can go into that castle, too. It's um, I think it's the one on Clare Island, isn't it? I'm doing this off the top of my head. Well, Clare Island still exists and Eccle Island still exists and Rockfleet still exists. And I would say if you had to pick one, I would go to Rockfleet because that's actually um, better preserved from what I understand. Mm. And, and it has all those legends, you know, like the hole in the wall where the rope went down to her boat. And um, I don't know. Yeah. I think that's the one I'm thinking of in my head because I was watching some YouTube videos of people walking through it. And yeah, that must that's the one. And it's on land. You don't have to. There's no boat involved. <laughs> right. Is that all you have? That is all I have. And in closing, I will leave you with a poem from O'Hart's Irish Pedigrees. O'Hart would not have been allowed in Galway. 
So no wonder he's on her side. And it really <laughs> does uh, give Granuel kind of the substance of a queen. And this is just part of a very long poem about the meeting between Queen Elizabeth and Grania O'Malley. "'Twas not her garb that caught the gazer's eye, though strange, t'was rich, and after its fashion good, but the wild grandeur of her mien, erect and high, before the English queen she dauntless stood, and none her bearing there could scorn as rude. She seemed as one well used to power, one that hath dominion over men of savage mood, and dared the tempest in its midnight wrath, and through opposing billows cleft her fearless path. And courteous greeting Elizabeth pays, and bids her welcome to her English land and humble hall. Each looked with curious gaze upon the other's face, and felt they stand before a spirit like their own. Her hand the stranger raised, and pointing, were all pale. Through the high casement came the sunlight bland, gilding the scene and group with rich avail. Thus to the English sovereign spoke proud Granuel. Nice. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you learned something about Irish history today, tell a few friends about us, won't you? Find us at the usual social media locations and come join us at the History Chicks Podcast Lounge, where everyone is in there talking about embroidery, history, TV, and vacations. Right now, anyway. And visit thehistorychicks.com for links, photos, and music. The end song is a tribute to another turbulent phase of folkloric history in Ireland, a poem called Avenging and Bright, sung here by Leon Lishner. It includes lyrics like, Yes, monarch, those sweet are our home recollections, those sweet are the tears that from tenderness fall, those sweet are our friendships, our hopes, and our affections. Revenge on a tyrant is sweetest of all. If that's not Grania in a nutshell, what is? And we will see you next time. We swear to revenge them, the joy shall be tasted. The heart shall be silent, the maidens unwed. Our hope shall be mute, and our field shall be wasted. Till vengeance is wreaked on the murderer's head. Chips.